Isaiah chapter 52, we begin in verse 1. This is the word of God. Let us hear it. Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth there shall no more come into thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake thyself from the dust. Arise and sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus saith the Lord, Ye have sold yourselves for naught, and ye shall be redeemed without money. For thus saith the Lord God, My people went down aforetime into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now therefore, what have I here, saith the Lord, that my people is taken away for naught? They that rule over them make them to howl, saith the Lord, and my name continually every day is blasphemed. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore they shall know in that day that I am he that doth speak. Behold, it is I. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice, with the voice together shall they sing, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring again Zion. Break forth into joy. Sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord hath comforted his people, he hath redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart ye, go ye out from thence, touch no unclean thing. Go ye out of the midst of her, be ye clean, that bear the vessels of the Lord. For ye shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your re-reward. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled, and be very high. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him, for that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. Amen. We'll end our reading at the end of the chapter. And we know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. Following many prophetic statements in the first half of the book of Isaiah that predict judgment upon Judah and Jerusalem, judgment that would eventually lead to their going into captivity and the city of Jerusalem and the temple of God being totally destroyed, we find in the second half of the book, beginning in chapter 40, Numerous prophetic statements that were given to comfort Israel and that predict that the Israelites would be restored to their land. 
It was not the end. As tempted as many might have been to think this was the end, the people led into captivity, the city destroyed. Oh, on the surface of it, you would think God's plan of redemption has ceased. God was unable to carry out his plan because of the sins of the people. Nothing could be further from the truth. A remnant among them recognized the, the, the justice and what God had done. And so there are numerous prophetic statements that have to do with their returning to the land. You could say then that verse 1 in the chapter we just read sets the tone for what follows when we read there. Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth thou shalt no more come into thee, the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake thyself from the dust. Arise and sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. I agree with a commentator who pointed out that the general topic in this verse and in this chapter is the promise of a rich blessing, first at the deliverance from the captivity of Babylon, and then, in a more complete sense, at the coming of Messiah. But then, quite suddenly, in the midst of many optimistic and wonderful statements about their return to the promised land and the victory of Messiah, we find then, uh, seemingly out of the blue, this very puzzling statement, what might seem like a puzzling statement, in verse 14, where we read, As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of man. His visage was so marred. The reference is to Christ. And this marring of his visage is what creates the astonishment that's mentioned in the first part of the verse. Listen to how another translation reads, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. They were astonished, our King James Version reads, at his appearance. I love the English definition of that word astonishment. It's defined as an emotional impact of overwhelming surprise or shock. Do you get that? An emotional impact of overwhelming surprise or shock. Astonishment, then, simply put, is an emotion of sorts. It has an emotional impact on those that are astonished. And the emotion involved in astonishment can go in either of two directions. That same dictionary uses the word in a couple of sentences to show these emotional directions. Here's the first sentence. I stood enthralled, astonished by the vastness and majesty of the cathedral. Picture someone standing outside of a magnificent cathedral and just being awed by uh, the sheer size and, uh, and magnificence of it. And then the next example reads, 
astounded viewers wept at the pictures from the Oklahoma City bombing. And you see a contrast, don't you, in emotions. Enthralled, that is, overcome in the case of the cathedral, with the awe by the majesty of the building, and then astounded or overcome with horror at the pictures from the Oklahoma City bombing. We can actually combine both of these ideas in the scripture in a verse that's found in 2 Chronicles Chapter 7 and verse 21. This is in the context of the dedication of the temple that King Solomon had just uh, built, or who oversaw the building of it. It was a magnificent structure that undoubtedly uh, astonished all who had the privilege of beholding it from all over the region and even beyond. I dare say that... uh, temple that Solomon built stood out as an impressive edifice. We know this, given the wisdom of Solomon, given all the materials that went into that building, this was a very impressive structure in how it would have, in a positive way, astonished anyone who could have seen it. In that same chapter, in Second Chronicles 7, We have the account of God appearing to Solomon for the second time. And he lets Solomon know that God had chosen that temple to bless it so long as the nation stayed true to Jehovah God. But that promise was then followed by a warning. That's found in in verse 19, 2 Chronicles 7. And this is God now speaking to Solomon when he says, But if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you, and shall go and serve other gods and worship them, then will I pluck them up by the roots out of my land which I have given them, and this house which I have sanctified for my name will I cast out of my sight and will make it to be a proverb and a byword among all nations. And this house, which is high, shall be an astonishment to everyone that passeth by it, so that he shall say, Why hath the Lord done thus unto this land and unto this house? So you get an idea here of contrasting emotions, don't you, when it comes to the use of that word astonishment. There were those who would have been highly impressed with uh, the edifice of Solomon's table, and yet the warning came that people would be astonished at the way the Lord would destroy it completely on account of the apostasy of the nation. And knowing as we do from the Old Testament the history of Israel, we know that this prediction of judgment came to pass, and that temple, glorious though it was, became an astonishment when the city of Jerusalem and the temple were burned to the ground. So you get an idea of the meaning of that word astonishment from two different perspectives, whether it be reverence and awe or whether it be abhorrence and being appalled. And with these perspectives in mind, I want now to look at our text in 
Isaiah 52 and verse 14 as it pertains to Christ. And I want you to consider with me how the Lord astonishes his people. How the Lord astonishes his people. Again, the verse, As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of man. Consider with me, first of all, if you would, that Christ's treatment, Christ's cruel treatment by sinful men astonishes us. Christ's treatment at the hand of cruel men astonishes us. It should astonish us. We should be appalled by it. And this is what the text has specifically in view when it tells us, as many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. He was beaten, in other words, beyond recognition. He was beaten in such a way that those that were nearest to him would barely, uh, if, uh, if, if at all, being able to recognize him. Such had been his treatment at the hands of cruel men. This is what Isaiah is telling us. We have the account of this in Matthew 26 and verse 67, where it tells us, Then did they spit in his face and buffeted him, and others smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ, who is he that smote thee? You know, every time I read that verse, I can't help but pause and reflect on a day that's coming when the people that were engaged in that very thing will see that prophecy fulfilled and Christ will say, it was you, as they stand before him in a coming judgment day. But you see how that verse fits the prophecy. They spit in his face, they buffeted him, Others smote him with the palms of their hands. And this was carried on to such a degree that his visage was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. A couple of chapters earlier in Isaiah were given another prophetic statement that contributes to the picture. In Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 6, we read, I gave my back to the smiters, and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. And when he came into this world initially, you see, there was nothing in his physical appearance that would have astonished anyone. So Isaiah tells us in that most famous chapter, chapter 53, which follows and flows from our text in chapter 52, speaking of Christ, it says, He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty in him that we should desire him. That text tells us that Christ was very ordinary in his appearance. He was not like a King Saul who stood taller than everyone else and conveyed the appearance of a king. Now, you would not have picked Christ out of a crowd and identified him as the Messiah simply by his physical appearance. 
Now, I don't believe in pictures of Christ, but neither can I deny that I've seen many of them. In some instances, Christ is readily apparent because the artist tries to create a divine glow about him that makes him stand out from others around him. I think those kinds of pictures especially dishonor him because the artist is trying to depict something you cannot depict, divinity shining through his humanity. And apart from his appearance in the Mount of Transfiguration, there was no appearance of divinity shining through his humanity. Had an artist tried to create his appearance in a painting accurately, he would have had to have painted him in a crowd in such a way that you wouldn't be able to single him out. He has no form nor comeliness that would make him stand out as being anything but ordinary. But by the time cruel men finished with him, his appearance would move those who saw him to complete and utter astonishment. And certainly a contributing factor to this astonishment would be the consideration of what he did to deserve such cruel treatment at the hands of men. Picture yourself in that crowd that would have been on hand to behold him. And you would have opportunity to see him, that his visage was marred more than any man. Certainly, the question that would have come to your mind would be, what could anyone have done to deserve this? All during his time of earthly ministry, he only went about doing good. He had healed many of their diseases. He had cured many lepers. He had healed those that were born blind. He had restored hearing to the deaf. He had cast demons out of people. Indeed, he brought back to life some that had died. How is it that a man who had performed so many good deeds, deeds that moved people to the kind of astonishment that's described as wonder and awe, how is it that one with such mercy and compassion could be beaten by men so that uh, to make him beyond recognition? Often, you know, those that do good have reason to complain that no one notices what they've done. And no one gives them any recognition for what they've done. But that's a far cry from being whipped and beaten mercilessly in spite of all the good that's been done. And by the time cruel men are through with him, we find him beaten and stripped and nailed to a cross. We're told in Luke chapter 23 that such was his treatment at the hands of cruel men that in his humanity he was too weak to carry his cross. So Simon, a Cyrenian, is drafted into that duty. How astonished do you suppose that man was to be drafted into such a task? I suppose the thought that would have been foremost on his mind is, don't forget, I'm only carrying this for someone else. I'm not the one assigned to it. And as the parade of victims to be crucified made their way to Mount Calvary, we read in Luke 23 and verse 27 of a company of women. 
And there followed him a great company of people and of women, which also bewailed and lamented him. Now, we don't know that these women were among his followers. I suspect that they knew little of Jesus unless they knew of the good he had done. But the thing that I think would have moved them to bewail and lament him would have been the very sight of him. Certainly the most vicious criminal would not have deserved to be so beaten and scourged and then crucified. And now what of this man who was beaten beyond recognition? Certainly their bewailing and lamenting him would have been expressions of their utter bewilderment at the treatment he had received from cruel men. We are able, these many years later, to behold him, and we're able to know why he received such treatment at the hands of cruel men. It was because of sin. And it's because of what sin deserves. I had the privilege this last Friday of judging apologetic speeches at a homeschool event. And in the particular event that I judged, students were given a question they had to answer. It's rather fascinating. They didn't know what the question was. They come into the room one at a time. You give them a three-by-five card. It has the question on them on it. They have five minutes to uh, study and prepare an answer. Then they have another five minutes to present their answer. And the question they were given was this. Would God send someone to hell for just one little sin? Oh, that's a good question for them to wrestle with, wasn't it? I was encouraged by how a number of the contestants dealt with the question by dealing first with God's nature. Before a thrice holy God, some of them pointed out, there's no such thing as one little sin. There was only one out of seven, however, that chose to answer the question in light of the cross. And so in the comment section of the forms I had to fill out for each contestant, I noted that if you want to know how bad one little sin is, go to the cross of Christ. There you see what sin deserves. Even one little sin in the estimation of man. There you can and should be utterly astonished at what sin brought what sin led to even a Savior being nailed to a cross. So that's the first thing about our text then that shows us how the Lord astonishes us. He astonishes us by the treatment he received at the hands of cruel men. The bread and the cup serve to remind us that his body was broken and his blood was shed. May we partake of these elements today with wonder and amazement at the treatment our Savior received at the hands of sinners. But our astonishment is moved all the more when we consider next that his treatment was by divine design. His treatment was by divine design. This was no accident. This was no circumstance of history of which many can be found that are simply unjust, cruel treatments of victims. 
Oh no, this goes much deeper than that. This was by divine design. The simple fact that our text contains a prophetic statement shows us that Christ's treatment at the hands of cruel men was by divine design. The book of Isaiah, you see, is, uh, was written in the 8th century B.C., some seven to eight hundred years before Christ appeared in this world, it was said of him, as many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of man. And this was not simply God looking down the tunnel of time to see what would happen. Oh no, this was in accordance with the divine plan, that's traceable to before time even began. From eternity past, Christ bears the title as the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Revelation 13 and verse 8. Oh, that's a title you should highlight. The Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That tells us that even before this world was created, it was in the divine plan for this Lamb, Christ, to be slain. And when Peter preached to the multitudes on the day of Pentecost, he proclaimed in Acts chapter 2 and verse 22 and following, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Oh, there's a, there's a verse that you want to note when it comes to the matter of the mystery revealed between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, Peter charges them with the crime, ye have taken him, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain him, he says, but by the same token, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken. It was all in accordance with the divine plan of redemption. The fall of man into sin, you see, didn't catch God by surprise. He saw it coming, and he planned accordingly. From the dawn of creation immediately following Adam and Eve's fall into sin, God announced to the serpent that lured them into sin, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. That's Genesis 3.15. We recognize that. I, I, I think I'll get the Latin right here. Judah will correct me if I'm wrong. This is the Proto-Evangelium in the Bible. The first mention of the Gospel. And you should look up that verse in Genesis 3 and verse 15, and you might want to put a note in your margin that reads something like this. The whole rest of the Bible unpacks this statement and shows how this came to pass. And when Christ came into this world, 
the very name Jesus, which was given to him by God and revealed to Joseph by an angel, was done so very deliberately because of the meaning of the name Jesus. So we read in Matthew 1 and verse 21, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. Why? Why give him the name Jesus? For he shall save his people from their sins. The name Jesus, meaning literally, Jehovah is salvation. Christ was, of course, knowledgeable of this plan. He left heaven's glory and came into this world, was born of the virgin, knowing full well why he came. And that part of the plan was the treatment he would receive at the hands of cruel men. He explained it to his disciples more than once, even though they couldn't comprehend it. So in Matthew 16, once Peter had confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, we go on to read in verse 21 of that chapter, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. We look at that today, don't we? And we understand it completely. We've got an entire Bible and we've got thousands of years of history that aid us in our understanding of the Bible. When the disciples heard that initially, you could say they were astonished in the sense that they were appalled. And in fact, Peter sought to say, not so, Lord, this can never happen to you. For which he was rebuked or Satan was rebuked through him. Jesus was wholeheartedly devoted, you see, to this plan of redemption. I love the way his determination to see the matter through is expressed in Luke chapter 9 and verse 51. We read there, And it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Knowing what awaited him in Jerusalem, he steadfastly set his face to it. He was resolutely determined to see the mission through. Knowing what that mission entailed. On another occasion, Christ likened his cross work to a baptism. So in Luke chapter 12 and verse 50, we read his words, But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how I am straightened till it be accomplished. Do you see his resolute determination? Do you see how this is all according to plan? So remember now the first kind of astonishment we considered under the point of his treatment at the hands of cruel men. We are astonished with amazement, and in a sense could say we're even appalled by the treatment he received. Now we see how his treatment was all in accordance with the counsel of his will in eternity past. His sufferings were planned before time began and were executed when the fullness of time arrived. What impact should this have on our astonishment then? You know, there's a couple of instances in the Gospel of Mark where the astonishment of those that beheld Christ is expressed in terms that enlarge that astonishment. 
So when he raised a young 12-year-old girl who had been sick and died back to life, we read in Mark chapter 5 and verse 42, And straightway the damsel arose and walked, for she was of the age of 12 years, and they were astonished with great astonishment. Two chapters later, we have the account of Christ healing a deaf man with a speech impediment. So we read in Mark chapter 7 and verse 26, And he charged them that they should tell no man. But the more he charged them, so much the more a great deal they published it, and were beyond measure astonished, saying, He hath done all things well. He maketh both the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. And so you see how in the one instance there was great astonishment, and in the next instance there was astonishment beyond measure, using the scriptural phrases now. I'm suggesting to you now that when you partake of these elements this morning and call to mind the sufferings of Christ and how those sufferings were in accordance with the divine plan of the ages, you should partake of these elements with great astonishment and even astonishment beyond measure that one would be so willing to come and so willing to bear what he bore for salvation to be accomplished. We can't begin, you see, to calculate the love of Christ that would so move him to endure all that he did in order to rescue us from the condemnation we deserve. So we're astonished at Christ's treatment at the hands of cruel men. And our astonishment is all the more magnified when we consider that this was in accordance with the divine plan of the ages. Let's consider finally and briefly how we should be astonished by how this divine plan was brought home to our hearts. When we read in our text that many were astonished by the Lord, by the fact that his visage was marred more than any man, which made him practically unrecognizable. I have no doubt that there were many, including that large company of women mentioned in Luke, that were sympathetically astonished by Christ's appearance, but were not savingly astonished. Only the ones that came to realize the divine plan of redemption would have been savingly astonished by Christ's willingness to bear all that he bore in order to demonstrate his love. And so we must carefully consider today what kind of astonishment characterizes us. Do you marvel at the cruelty that men could inflict on others? That kind of astonishment is not uncommon in our day, you know. And especially in recent days, I say this kind of astonishment has been manifested, if you will, by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We marvel at the ambitions of a cruel tyrant who wants to spread his empire and he's willing to destroy schools and hospitals and kill thousands of people in the pursuit of his own vainglory. But if all the sufferings of Christ do is provo provoke that kind of astonishment, then you miss the point of his sufferings. 
When that company of women followed him, bewailing and lamenting him, we read in Luke chapter 23 and verse 28, But Jesus, turning unto them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Christ then goes on to foretell the judgment that was to come on Jerusalem in the near future. Only those that understand and believe in and have appropriated the plan behind Christ's sufferings should be astonished with reverential awe and should partake of communion. There's a song in our hymn book that captures the true nature of the believer's astonishment with Christ. It's a hymn by Isaac Watts, the name of it. I know that you know it. How sweet and awful is the place. And even in that word awful, Isaac Watts has in mind the astonishment of reverential awe. In the third stanza of that hymn, the question is asked, Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room? when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. And in the next stanza we sing, "'Twas the same love that spread the feast that sweetly forced us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin." Oh, it's only by God's grace, you see, and the power of the Holy Spirit that you understand that there was so much more to the sufferings of Christ than jealous rivals putting another rival to death with great cruelty. Now you hopefully understand that it was all in accordance with God's plan of salvation through the ages. And if the Holy Spirit has impressed that upon your heart, and if you understand and appreciate what Christ bore, and you worship Christ as your Savior and Lord, and as God come in the flesh, then this communion table is for you. May you look upon these elements and see beyond them to what they point to, which is the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. And may you marvel with astonishment this morning at the grace and love that would condescend to make such great provision for your salvation. Let's close then in prayer before the elements are distributed. Let's all pray. O Lord, as we bow now in thy presence, we do marvel at what our Savior did we marvel at his love. We're astonished at his condescension to come into a cruel world, knowing as he did when he came into this world what kind of treatment he would receive and how that treatment was necessary if redemption was to be accomplished. O oh Lord, as we come now to this time in the service when we remember thy broken body and shed blood, may we indeed be astonished with wonder and awe at such tremendous condescension, 
and at the high price that Jesus was willing to pay to redeem us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.